All right, we are resuming our study of 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to start 1 John 5 this morning. This is the second part of the fellowship's orthopraxis of love, fancy term, and it simply means right practice. So we're talking about how we as Christians ought to live. The last section of this series, we were talking about the orthodoxy of love, the doctrines that undergird everything that we do as Christians. So we talked about the Trinity. We talked about the incarnation, Jesus dying on the cross. Now we're shifting gears and we're looking at some practical applications. But we got through 16, 17, and 18, those verses. So we're going to resume in verse 14. So let's look at that together. It says, we love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hated his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Or sorry, whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So for your notes, if you're following along with those, we're on point four, love soothes and convicts. So this statement right here, even though it's short and to the point, it's powerful. We love him because he first loved us. Now, this is in preparation for verse 20, where someone says, I love God, but yet he's hating his brother in his actions. So he's not showing love. He's not providing for his brother's worldly needs. We talked about how in John's mind, that's what he means by loving somebody is loving indeed and in truth and taking care of somebody if they need it. So if you had a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ that needed food and you had that food to provide to them, but you didn't, that would not be loving your brother. That would, in John's mindset, be hating your brother. So he's saying, how can you say, hey, I love God. I'm a Christian. I serve the Lord, but yet have that kind of behavior in your life. And so verse 19, it lays the foundation for everything he's about to go into. We love him. Yes, we love God because he first loved us. So it all starts with his love for us. And I think this is something that we really need to be reminded of all the time. I mean, we're children of God, but how did we become children of God? Did we just come into the world automatically children of God, born again with eternal life, saved? No, we started out as enemies of God, according to scripture, and we were reconciled to him. So what happens is if you've been a Christian for a while, okay, you get into this mentality, which you ought to have, I'm a child of God. But every now and then you kind of forget or you suppress the fact that you are a child of God because God made you one. You didn't used to be. You were adopted into the family. That's the kind of um, sonship that we have is through the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again and bringing us into the family. So whenever we say, look, we love God, we are his children, and that usually takes place in the context of church because he's talking to people who are part of a congregation. They meet together. They interact with each other on a daily basis. And we say, we love God. We love each other. The reason that we can say that is because we've been saved by the grace of God. The reason that we're meeting here together isn't just because some of us have blood relationships with each other. Okay. We're actual immediate family. We're meeting together as a congregation because we have a common heavenly father. And so love soothes and it convicts the fact that they could say we love God means that they were loved first by God. Now in this context, he's saying you were loved by God with that special love that turns you from an enemy into a child. So that should soothe you. That should comfort you. I'm loved by God. I have a relationship with him. He's about to talk about being born again. 
So being a child of God means that you are loved by God in a special way. He does love everybody. Jesus did die on the cross for everybody. But it's a fact that we have a relationship with God that nobody else in the world does. If they're not a believer, if they have not accepted Christ, then they do not relate to him the way we do as Christians. And so it's soothing to know that God loves me. And that love's unconditional, right? The love of God is a love that guarantees our eternal security. So that's not just a theological catchphrase. That's something that comes straight out of the Bible. It's not a man-made idea. The fact that we have everlasting life is straight from John 3.16. So that's one of the greatest proofs, I think, of eternal security is just looking at that verse. The life that we have in Christ when we get saved, how long does it last? It's everlasting, right? So it should soothe us and comfort us to know that no matter what we do, even when we do sin, as John talks about how if you say you're without sin, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. He's talking to believers. He's saying, even I still sin. No one's free from it until we're glorified and Jesus comes back. Or we die and we're with the Lord and we're set free from our sin nature here in the world. But um, even though we continue to sin, we are loved by God unconditionally. And so that cuts through fear. And so that's something we should remind ourselves of, especially in light of the fact that, again, verse 18 from last week, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear had torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. So that we looked at is about the chastising uh, effect of Christian life that God chastises believers whenever we are sinning against him and we're out of fellowship with God. He disciplines us because he's our father. And that discipline is not the same as what an unbeliever experiences when they suffer God's judgment. So what happened to, let's say, Sodom and Gomorrah is not the same thing that Christians experience. We experience God's disciplining hand, and sometimes that can be severe. I mean, we have examples in the Bible of Ananias and Sapphira being struck down, okay, because they lied to the Holy Spirit, okay? They had the Holy Spirit in them. They were grieving the Spirit. They were quenching the Spirit, and God disciplined them in a radical way by taking them out of the world, okay? But that discipline is not eternal, and it's ultimately going to result in a restoration between the erring Christian and God. Even if somebody died because they were a carnal believer and up until their last breath, they were sinning against God. But when they go to heaven, they don't have a sin nature anymore. Or when Jesus comes back at the rapture, they don't have a sin nature anymore. And so there will be restoration with God. It's not like they're going to continue sinning against God in heaven and he's going to have to ongoing discipline. Then that's not the way it works. Um, But verse 18 is telling us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Um, Paul's, or uh, sorry, John is talking about as we're loved by God and as we are reciprocating that love by doing his commands, by loving other people, that does cast out fear. It gives us confidence. We know that we're pleasing the Lord. Is it wrong to say that a Christian can be confident that they're pleasing the Lord? No, it's not wrong because John gives you the criteria all throughout this book. If you want to know you're walking in the light, is this what you're doing? And if you're holding fast to sound doctrine and you're loving your brethren in Christ, then you're walking in the light and you're pleasing God and you should be confident that if you died right now and you stand before God, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, instead of being uh, reprimanded, okay, instead of coming before the judgment seat of Christ at the rapture, if that happens first, and we hope that it happens, I'd rather go up in the rapture than die, right? I mean, if you got to pick which one, (laughs) the rapture would be better. But let's say someone is taken up in the rapture and... They're like that person who built on the foundation, the hay, wood, and stubble, okay? I don't know what's going to be said there. 
The Bible doesn't tell us all that. But that person's still saved. It makes it very clear in that text in 1 Corinthians 3 that they're saved. But they don't come before God victoriously. They don't come before God and, and receive a commendation. They don't receive the martyr's crown or the victor's crown or any number of crowns that the Bible talks about. And so, of course, when we are applying our love for God, because we have it, and it's like my kids, I, I know that they love me. I have no doubt in the world that they love me, and I have no doubt in the world that they love each other, but we had a long talk on the way over here about showing love, right? Like, I know that you love each other. If you didn't have each other around, you would miss each other because you do have that relationship. However, you're hiding your love <laughs> for that other person if you're not treating them with kindness. So as we're doing that, as we're maturing in our faith and showing that love, we have confidence before God. But another thing, while God's unconditional love is soothing and comforts us, knowing that we are accepted by God unconditionally, it's also really convicting too. Because again, I have to remind myself every now and then that even though I got saved when I was six years old at a very young age, it didn't have to be that way. Okay? Hypothetically speaking, if I wouldn't have accepted Christ when I was six years old, and I would have grown up, and I would have... Uh, had a rebellious phase in high school or I lived my life outside of God's will because I didn't have that relationship, um, I could look very different than I look right now. So we shouldn't take for granted the fact, hey, we're in God's family and this is just the way it is. And so let's take advantage of that in a negative sense. We, we can't think that way because we were once enemies that were reconciled to God. And so while it is true that God loves us unconditionally, and we have that eternal security. Whenever we are thoughtful about the love that God has shown us, it really does cut me to the heart. Like, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die because God loves me and I'm his child. But when I sin and I know that, look, that sin right there would separate me eternally from God if I wasn't a child. If I wasn't born again, the sins that I do as a Christian just think about that. I mean, think about sins that you commit as a Christian. Okay, maybe it's just the sin of unkindness towards other people, which we do that. You know, we, we don't uh, treat people as the valuable human beings that they are. Whenever we do that, we're sinning against God, right? If you weren't a Christian that was covered by the blood of Jesus, that sin would be eternally condemning. Isn't that a sobering thought? So while you're comforted by the blood of Christ, and you're comforted that, hey, I'm a child of God, okay, this behavior that I have does not separate me from God for all eternity because I've accepted the gift of salvation as a free gift by faith alone. It still is one of those things where it's like, whoo, man, that was a close one. You know, it's kind of like somebody walking too close to a cliff, okay? And they're oblivious, okay, as to the danger beneath them. And they're about to fall off. Someone pulls them back from the edge. And then you look back and you realize, I just almost fell off that cliff. Now, you're not fearing that you're going to fall off now because you've just been saved, but you're shaken up. And so that's something that I think the love of God can do, too. It's a positive thing because it reminds us of how great the love of God is for us. It's really easy to take that for granted. If you just always in your mind thought, well, you know, I've, I've been a Christian my whole life and, you know, because you got saved when you were really young and you just have that operating, that thought all the time that I'm saved, I'm secure, me and God are good it's really easy to forget, well, you didn't, yeah, it's true, okay, if you're saved, you are good, but it didn't have to be that way. In fact, if it wasn't for Jesus and him coming down from heaven and snatching you out of the hands of death, 
then it wouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's again, and that's that's where love both soothes us from our fears. It comforts us knowing that we're forgiven and God has shown us mercy more than we can understand. But it also is like, oh wow, I shouldn't take advantage of that in a negative way. I should take advantage of it in a positive way by living victoriously and honoring him in my life. So I think that I can say that I've had that same feeling with my relationships, like humanly speaking, uh, people that um, I know they love me no matter what, no matter what I do, they love me. You know, Nana loves me no matter what. Okay. Uh, my mom's with the Lord now, but you know, she loved me unconditionally. Uh, my dad loves me unconditionally. Okay. I'm always going to be, you know, theirs, you know, Nana's like another mom. Okay. So I'm, I'm like her child, you know, I'm my mama's child, my daddy's child, but that still doesn't give me the comfort to say I can just do whatever I want to do and disregard them and disregard the, you know, the things that they are telling me I ought to do because it's the right thing to do. I don't feel comfortable disregarding them because of how great their love is. And we shouldn't feel comfortable disregarding God because of how great his love is. So God's love is actually God's grace is what brings us closer to his light and closer in fellowship with him. So many people think that, hey, if you just, if you pile God's love on people, if you really talk about grace, like unconditional grace, eternal security, they're just going to run away with it. And they're going to, they're going to depart from God and they're going to be carnal Christians. And they're just going to do any sin that they want because they don't have that fear that their salvation's on the line. And that's not the truth at all. I mean, it's quite actually the opposite. And I just saw a video, it was on TikTok and, um, yeah, I know, but it wasn't I, It wasn't actually on TikTok. It was on Facebook, but anyways, I saw it on Facebook, and this guy was talking about how uh, the difference of employer, okay, the different uh, managing personalities has a lot in the uh, productivity and the, um, yes, the morale of the employees. And so this one person was working in um, some hotel, I think out in Vegas, and such a really like happy, jubilant, like this person really loved their job. And so he had to ask questions. You know, as a person who manages other people, he's like, I, I want to know like what, what this job is like. So anyways, in talking with the young man, he discovered these managers are always checking up, but in a positive way. They're like, you know, how are you doing? Like, are you happy? Like, is there something that I need to know? Like, I want you to be able to do your best job, you know, and, and I'm glad that you're here. And they treated them with that kind of respect. They were very gracious. They didn't come down heavy-handed. And so these people loved their job. And so they felt so comfortable there. They were just really productive. And everybody had good things to say about, you know, their service. And then this, this same guy had another job at another hotel. And those managers were always coming down hard on their employees. And he said, man, I, I just, I, I feel like I just got to fly below the radar. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, as happy and I'm not, it doesn't come across as much, you know, whenever I'm serving people because I'm just constantly looking over my shoulder in fear. And I thought that's kind of similar to Christianity in this way. A person who at some point gets trapped in legalism and a lot of evangelical churches are trapped in legalism because they're constantly questioning their salvation. Um, and a lot of pastors encourage that, which is not a good thing, but 
in that case, those people, I think they're so introspective. If you're so introspective about yourself, you're not looking at other people and saying, look, how can I serve you? Because the whole time in the back of your mind, you're thinking, what about me? What about me? What about me? Like, how can I worry about anybody else if I'm going to be going to hell and I'm not sure that I'm going to heaven? But if you know you're going to heaven and, and you're so thankful that God has saved you unconditionally, then it's going to show. I mean, I mean, people who generally aren't nice, if they have a really good day, maybe someone's given them a gift. People would be like, man, that person's usually grumpy. Like, why are they so happy? Why are they being nice to everybody? Exactly. So I'm telling you, grace has a transformative effect. It may seem um, like reverse psychology almost, but if, if God tells you, look, it's free, I love you no matter what, you're accepted by me no matter what you do, then someone's like, really? Are you, are you serious? Like, no matter what I do. And God's like, yeah, that's how good it is. You're like, it's good news. It's like, so I want to serve God now. So love, it soothes us and it convicts us. Now let's look at verse 20 and 21, because these go together. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So this is common sense. It's a lot easier to love somebody that you see and you're familiar with, someone who's present in your life. Um, loving somebody who lives in another country that you don't know, that you're not around, you're not familiar with, it's a lot harder to do than loving somebody here. And so John is just appealing to common sense. This is his argument that if you say, look, I love God, but at the same time you're hating your brother, that doesn't make any sense because you can't see God, right? God's in heaven, right? God isn't around you. God's not asking you for food or asking you for clothes, okay? So if you're not loving this person that you know, that you're familiar with, who's like around you daily with these needs that you could provide, how can you say that you love God? Who, who, is, who is far away and someone that you can't see, he's invisible. So that's the common sense argument. But he also uses another argument that I think appeals more to people who believe and they have a relationship with God. That's more of a logical argument. But verse 21, it's, it's, pure, uh, it's pure the commandment of God, it says in verse 21. This commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So God said so. So not only is it illogical to claim at the same time, I love God, and I'm hating my brother. It's illogical to do that. But God told you that if you love him, if you're going to love him like you say you do and like you want to, then you've got to love your brother also. If my kids ask me, Daddy, what can I do to make you happy? Well, if you want to make me happy, love your brother. Love your sister. Like, that's what you got to do. If you want to make me happy, then that's what you have to do. So if a person's going around saying, look, I'm a Christian, so I'm all in the business of loving God and knowing God. Then this is what you have to do. Um, and so no matter who they are, and sometimes that's very difficult, ain't it? And so point five, love frees us so we can get outside of ourselves. Love frees us so we can get outside of ourselves. Um, this is what I wrote, and I think I stated it well when I wrote it down, so I'm just going to repeat it. Loving God comes as a natural response to understanding his love for us first. This understanding produces gratitude, which impacts those around us. Hating others involves entitlement, which in turn involves taking God's love for granted. And I think that anytime you mistreat somebody as a Christian, anytime, and you have this understanding of God's love for you, the good news of the gospel, you are entitled. You may not be aware of it, but you have entitled behavior because you're acting as if, look, this person 
doesn't deserve me loving them, but yet that implies that you deserve it. I mean, you're saying God loves me, but I'm not going to love these people. So they're not worth God's love, my love, but I am. And you may not be saying, if you like say it out loud, you're like, oh, wow, man, that sounds really bad (laughs) because it is. Sometimes we're not aware of it, but that's what hating others involves. It's entitlement because I'm not a child of God because God picked me. Now, if God picked me unconditionally in the sense of predestination or the Calvinistic view, then you know what? I think that that could lead to some self-entitlement behavior because you're saying, look, God picked me. He didn't pick them. He picked me. And so it gives you self-importance. However, (laughs) however, if God died for everybody and not, and not just me, but everybody, and absolutely he did, limited atonement is not in the Bible. Okay, the idea that God died for everybody, that's in the Bible. And I don't think anybody reading the Bible naturally, okay, without first reading in the doctrine of limited atonement, would ever come away with the idea that God only died for a few people. Okay, out of the mass of humanity. No, Jesus Christ died on the cross for everybody. And if you understand that, you're like, oh, wow. So the reason I'm a child is because he died for me. He convicted me, drew me like he's drawing everybody. And I, and, I, and I accepted his gift. Is that something to brag about? I accepted God's gift? No, of course it's not. It's a gift. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. So if you think about it that way, then look, all these people, if I think that I want the love of God and I need the love of God and I, I expect the love of God in my life, because we do. I mean, we every single day say we're loved by God, right? We at least should. So if I can go around talking as if the love of God applies to me, that there's a rightness to that, then how could I act in a way that implies it's not right for these other people? But if it's right for me, then it's right for them. If I go about my life saying I'm loved by God and I take comfort from that, these people ought to be able to take comfort from it too. And if I'm loved by God and he's told me to love them because he loves them too, even though they're not saved, even though they're not his children yet, but he wants them to become his children, just like I became his child, then I ought to be doing that. So I think that really every single day we ought to just say to ourselves, I am loved by God. I am saved by his grace. Nothing can, can separate me from his love. And he wants that with everybody else too. And if we really think that, then no matter how difficult that person may be, because there are difficult people that we deal with all the time. If we remind ourselves, how difficult is my sin? When it comes to God and his court of law, how difficult is my sin? Well, it required Jesus to take on flesh and die for me. Okay, that's difficulty, right? The trial that Jesus went through to pay for my sin. So how can I say they're different from me or I'm different from them? And so... Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm not, and of course, I'm not saying that we should let people take advantage of us. That's not what I'm saying. Um, or we should let, or, or we should let t- people take advantage of our loved ones and mistreat them. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when people do that, we don't automatically write them off and say, okay, this person is unworthy of God's love, and thus they're unworthy of my love. And if we ever start thinking that way, that's that's wrong. Yes, and so 
I think that if we in a situation are torn, okay, and we got this conviction to love this person, but yet they're mistreating somebody else, and it's our conviction to love this person, right, by standing up for them, okay, I think that in some cases we do have to make a choice. And that choice may be, okay, I'm going to continue praying for this person. Uh, when I'm able to be a light to them, I will. But I do have to advocate for not just this person, but these people too. And this person is mistreating them. And so I can't, I can't let that happen because that would be unloving. So I don't think that setting boundaries is unloving. I think it is loving. I, I really do believe it is. And we live in an imperfect world, so we do the best with what we can. And that's something that God leads us to accomplish. We can't do it on our own. There are times where relationships involve big choices and they're hard ones. And as long as we are saying, God loves me, God loves them, I don't deserve his grace, and they don't deserve it either, and, and that's the perspective that we're starting from, I don't think that God is going to lead us astray. I think he's going to guide us into all truth. He doesn't spell out every decision that we have to make, but if we start from a perspective of grace, I do not believe God will let us go astray uh, because that's what he tells us to do in his word. So again, that point number five is love frees us so we can get outside of ourselves. And guys, that is so important. You cannot get outside of yourself if you don't understand God's love for you. You can't do it because you're constantly questioning God's love for you. And it's about me, 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 me. You're never freed to love other people. But when you have victory, knowing you're, you're an overcomer, you've already overcome, you're already saved, it's settled for all eternity, then I'm able to think about other people because I'm done. Check it off the list. Where am I going when I die? Check it off. I'm going to heaven. And so now I don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't have to look inside. I can look outside. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. Uh, now, uh, point six, go ahead and read it. Love already rooted in us. Love already rooted in us is key to our self-understanding. So uh, verses number one and two of chapter five. And again, these chapters and verses, by the way, they were added many, many years later. So a lot of times people will be like, well, why don't you just stop right there and start chapter five later? Because I think John's thoughts continuing here. And so that's why I'm going past uh, chapter four into chapter five. But verse one says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that hath love, sorry, and everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Again, I'll say that one more time. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. If, if, you, if you love, and I think in this case, when it talks about the begotten, there's differences of opinion about that. I do believe that in this case, what John is trying to say is, if you love God, who causes people to become his children, okay? He caused you to become his child. Then you ought to love his other children, those who are begotten of him, just like you. And guess what, guys? I think we already do. I just think that whenever we don't act that way, we're suppressing our new nature. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, if you believe, then you're born of God. Now, do you think that this new nature that Christ has given us leads us into sin? Do you think the Holy Spirit leads us into sin? Never. So your nature now that you've been born again, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, never will lead you to hate somebody. So that means whenever you do hate somebody, you're not acting yourself, okay? That's what he's saying. You're, that's your old self. That's not your new self. You're acting in accordance with the flesh that you still have. You're not acting in accordance with this new nature that you've been given. So your new identity, which is established for all eternity, when you die and you go to heaven, 
you're never going to be selfish again. You're never going to be unloving again. That's the new you. Okay, everything that's old is going to pass away eventually, right? Even the heavens and the earth. This phase of existence will pass away. And what remains permanent and everlasting is the new you in Christ. So this position that we have, the fact that we are born-again people, that's key, again, to loving people, okay? It's already rooted in us. In verse 2, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. That's how we know that we're loving God and uh, that we're loving his children is when we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous, it goes on to say. What are those commandments, though? In verse 21, he tells us that he who loveth God, love his brother also. You love God and you love your brethren in Christ. It's pretty simple, ain't it? And I think that's part of what it means when he says his commandments are not grievous in verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. What does it mean, grievous? I was looking up the Greek word here, and it can be translated different ways. It can be weighty, like a really heavy burden, or it can also be oppression, as in violence. Somebody pushing something on you. Not just like something's heavy weight, but someone's pushing a heavy weight on you. So that, that idea of violence is also a connotation for the Greek term. And so a lot of people think of God that way, unfortunately. God pushes a burden down on our back. Exactly. I don't yeah. But rather than God pushing something on us, John is saying here that his commandments, loving God and loving other people, they're not, they're not weighty. They're not heavy. They're not burdensome. And he tells you why in verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Such simple teaching right there, but there's nothing about working to overcome the world. There's nothing about doing things as in checking things off a list. So what do you got to do to overcome, to be victorious? You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that he's the Christ. What does Christ mean? He's the chosen one. The word Christ is more than just Jesus existing for all eternity past as the Son of God. Christ means he was the one that was sent. Christ means chosen one, essentially, the anointed one. And so if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God that was sent by the Father, the anointed one, who came to do what? To save us from our sins by dying on the cross and coming back from the dead. If we believe that, not believe that, oh, well, Jesus died for our sins, but we also got to this, that, the other. No, Jesus came and paid for our sins, and that's it. If we believe that, then we have overcome. This is past tense, by the way. Now, there are other passages where it talks about overcoming in a, in a present sense, as in, are you overcoming now in your actions? Okay, An overcomer would be someone who acts according to their new nature. So when you're acting according to your new nature, you're overcoming Okay, in a practical sense. Now, even if you're not acting like the Holy Spirit wants us to, you still overcome in the general sense that John is saying here. You've overcome the world. What is the world? The world is the realm of the devil. Okay? It's a rebellious kingdom. He's called the false god of this world. 
And if you are part of the world, then you are a rebel in the eyes of God. And if you're a rebel in the eyes of God, then he's going to cast you into his eternal prison. However, he's saying, you're not of the world anymore, okay? You've been taken out of the world and put in God's kingdom. You're part of his family, his household. And so you've already overcome the world because you believed. So now you need to act like it. That is John's motivation. And if the evangelical world would just get that right, I think that our churches would be healthier and happier. Not, okay, you better overcome or else God's going to reject you and send you to hell. That's not what he's saying. No, it's you've already overcome. It's a done deal. God, yeah, God has delivered you. The devil has no power over you. You're no longer a rebel in the eyes of God. And so even when you're sin, you're a sinning child. And that's a categorically different thing than a sinning rebel. You're not a rebel anymore. And so, and this is the last point for number seven. Love removes all complaints for we realize where we're going and why. Can I honestly complain about anything that God wants me to do? When I really know where I'm going and why. What I once was, but what I'm not anymore. I can't. I can't honestly complain about anything. And that is what John is saying. The key to it all is you're victorious. You've already got the victory. So when God asks you to do something, it's not grievous because you don't have to do things to get into heaven. He's not asking you to do things to get into heaven. He's asking you to do things because you're already going there. And when you look at life that way, I think that serving God is the most natural and the easiest thing to do when you know where you're going and you know why. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. This is where I'll wrap it up, okay? This is where I'll wrap it up. Um, and maybe we'll touch on this a little bit more next week. But when I was in college, and I've maybe shared this before, but I'll share it again, guys, because I was a mess and people maybe not have seen it. Katie, she tells me like, I didn't know that. But when I was in college, I doubted my salvation almost nonstop. And I was terrified that if I stood before the Lord, he was going to say, I don't know you depart from me. I was terrified. And it was because what was being taught then and what is probably being taught now in most Baptist colleges and in most Baptist churches is you need to examine yourself and see whether or not you're living a good enough life before you can say, I'm saved. And to even say that, a lot of people would say, that's presumptuous to say that I'm saved. Because how do you know that you're going to make it to the end? You might lose faith. And if you lose faith, God's going to lose you. And that is what is taught. And I was miserable until senior year. I don't know what exactly I read. I, I mean, I think that <clears throat> I found some good preachers, some good teachers, and uh, I, I read some of their stuff, but it brought me back to when I was six years old and I got saved. And it was like what they said was the exact same thing that I can remember being taught to me when I was little. That childlike faith was, look, it's so simple. Just believe in Jesus. And if you ask him to save you from your sins, he's never going to say no. And he's not going to let you go after that point, no matter what you do. And when I was six, you know what happened when I did that? I was so excited. Okay. I skipped, I literally skipped to the car. I can remember skipping and I couldn't pronounce the word Christian, right? So I say Christian. So I said it, but I was so excited that I was saved because I knew I'm not going to hell anymore. I'm not worried about that. I'm going to heaven. And I was excited. I want to tell people about it. And, um, 
I'll share this with y'all next week. We'll look at this passage because I think that it's a good one. But in Hebrews 10, verses 33, or sorry, 32 through 34, I'd encourage you if you're listening to check that out. And I'd encourage you to ask yourself this question. Do you remember your gratitude when you were first saved? Because I do. I remember the gratitude. And that's what the Hebrews, that's what the Hebrews had. They had gratitude. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, do you remember when you were first illuminated and your mind was like awake? You knew God now. You knew what was at stake, and you had believed in Jesus. Imagine how much you dealt with. They were dealing with persecution, and they stood up for other believers that were being persecuted, putting their lives on the line. He says, remember how confident you were? He said, go back to that. Go back to that. And we have to go back to the beginning every single day. And so I will not tolerate, um, and I I try to be gracious, of course, when I have conversations with people, because I know that... uh, very well, they could be like me when I was in college. I didn't have a lot of tolerance for people who believed in the way I'm teaching eternal security, okay? That it's absolutely free. At that time, I thought, yeah, it's free, but technically no one really knows if they're truly saved because if you're truly saved, then you're going to produce works. So I was looking a lot at myself and my works and I had no confidence because of that. So I don't tolerate that. I don't think Christians should tolerate that. I think that if churches want to thrive and grow, then they have to know the basics. And the basics are who Jesus is. He's the eternal son of God, the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings, and salvation is the the greatest, freest gift imaginable. No strings attached, literally none. And if you get those two things right, I think your churches will thrive. And I I think that your life as an individual will thrive. So hopefully this was a blessing to you if you're listening. Um, Please join us and we'll continue next week going through 1 John.